couple of weeks ago, um, one, of, one of the Sunday mornings, I was here was preaching. Um, and on this particular Sunday, like, it just felt like it was going really well. Like, people were tracking along, nodding along. Things were, like, I could feel it. There's certain momentum. And then one of the greeters came in. It's like, hey, your mom and your sisters are, are here. And that would mean a lot because they don't live here in Atlanta for them to have traveled here. They must be here for something important. Uh, I don't know what it is. But as I said, my sermon was going really well that day. And so, um, so I simply said, like, who? Who are my mother and my sisters? This room. This room is my mother and my sisters and my brothers because they do the will of God. Now, clearly, that story is fictitious. <clears throat> but if that had happened... And you had watched that happen, that interchange take place. To be real, you'd probably be pretty put off by my response, right? That, that feels cold or callous. You'd probably be difficult to jump right back into my teachings. Like, you'd be thinking about my mom and how she received that piece of information or how she felt and probably reevaluating me and your perception of me and what you think of me. And if we're, to be real, if we're going to see Jesus in the story, I think we have to be to sort of sit in that uncomfortableness of like, how, how rude is Jesus being or not? Like, what's going on here? And, and we have to wrestle with the questions that Jesus have an overbearing mom was like, oh, mom, like, leave me alone. Like, doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing, and you're always trying to stop me from doing that. Or is Jesus so in the zone, he just doesn't want to be distracted. Like, he's in that deep thought, things are clicking. It's like, I, I can't deal with this right now. Let's keep moving but perhaps Jesus is saying something that's more profound, um, something so profound that uh, it gets lost on a lot of us, and one of the most crucial aspects um, of what it means to be his follower. So at first I want to focus on what Jesus didn't say before I get to what he did say. And, and I need to start with a really important question that like, my wife and I wrestle through all the time, which is, what happened to rom-coms? Um, like, rom-coms, they... Romantic comedies, like, don't exist anymore. Like, they were a thing for the longest time. Like, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks and, like, all of these storylines of romantic comedies. And they've really gone away, right? And, and I would say if you're, like, a late millennial into Gen X or Boomer sort of generations, like, storytelling, storytelling does particular things and often reflects sort of the culture, and it often reflects the big questions of the culture, of like, who am I? What makes for a full and good life? Like, that's what stories like to tell. And so for, for, for those of us older and, and older than me, and maybe right around the hinge of my age, the, the, the definition of like, who I am as a person, what is the fulfilling life, was, was often caught up in relationships, particularly romantic relationships. Like, a full life is when I can find the one and live happily ever after. Like, that's what rom-coms, like, that was the end of the, the storylines. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy. There's some reason they can get together. They resolve that problem, and they live happily ever after. It's, every, it's the storyline of every rom-com. And so you have that sort of storytelling. But over the last 10 years, I would say there's been quite a shift. And it's been replaced with more of a, a coming-of-age Storyline. Those storylines have always existed, but it's been much more heightened. Um, like in 2017, like Lady Bird, the movie, almost snuck in and won the Academy. It's a phenomenal movie. Uh, I would highly recommend it. But um, it's, it's a story of self-discovery, not necessarily romance at all. Um, 
It's almost like those movies end with the camera panning away from the main character and the soundtrack kicks in and you're like reflect on the story of this individual and what they had to conquer to find their true self. And, and that ending is replaced, has replaced the Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks kissing in the end or whatever uh, is at the end of the storyline. Even the most recent rom-com that did really well uh, was um, Ticket to Paradise, which was like such a Gen X boomer movie uh, with, with George Clooney and Julia Roberts. And so um, it was like a, a callback to the day. It was like nostalgic rom-com. And I bring this up not to say that either one of them is better or worse. Like glamorized self-discovery is no better than glamorized romantic discovery. But I do bring this up to point out that the ache that people feel and the questions that people like to ask and the things that people find like ultimate identity and value in change. And they change with cultural norms. And so I, I think it's really important sometimes for us to like dive into exactly how Jesus's culture and identity would have been driven and how people might have heard the things that Jesus said. To be clear, the strongest bond and the strongest sense of self-identity was likely tied into family and likely tied into siblings more than anything else uh, in Jesus' time. Like, that's the driver. And, and we have history to give us an example. So Herod Archelaus, he's the one that took over for the Herod from the Christmas stories. Um, he's, him and his brothers took over different pieces of Israel. And Herod Archelaus uh, was so bad that when Joseph and Mary returned to Jerusalem, or Bethlehem, they decide not to stay there uh, because the new Herod in charge is so bad they continue on to Nazareth. And so this Herod Archelaus uh, takes the throne. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of people who don't really like him. They don't really want him to take the throne. And uh, eventually he has to go and appeal to Caesar to actually let him take the property. And while he's gone, there's a whole rebellion, uh, a bunch of, 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 of uh, Israelites rebel against the fact that he's going to be there. But Caesar gives him permission to become king, and in the process, Caesar um, deals with the rebellion, but he pardons everyone who, um, every Israelite, except those who have any blood relative connections to Archelaus. Those ones were killed. And so that connection, that blood connection, like you do not betray family. And it was so central to who you are. At the time, there's no greater sin or disloyalty uh, than to, to turn against blood relatives. The same thing was true of Herod, the, the, the dad of the story. There's this feud between his sister and his wife. And to solve the feud, he kills his wife uh, and keeps relationship with his sister. Or even um, Octavia and Mark Antony, uh, a pretty famous story from Rome. And by the way... I, I don't think about the Roman Empire every day. I know it's a whole thing, um, some weird thing, but I don't, that's just not what I think about. Um, but Octavia had to choose between Mark Antony and her brother, Octavius, and she ends up choosing her brother over Mark Antony because the brother, the sibling bond, is the tightest bond. So Jesus' time, it's not marriage, it's not romantic love, it's not coming of age, it's discovery. It is profoundly familial in ways that most of us don't understand. Now, if you're in the room and you come from what would sometimes we call third culture, or you come from um, most of the non-Western European world, you might have some familiarity with this. Um, but for many of us, this is foreign. Um, the strong group societies uh, is what sociologists call it. And many societies around this world that are not modern Western European societies. So if you come from one of those, you understand. Like those familial ties, like honoring the family, 
weighs super heavy uh, of what cultural norms are. And there's pluses or minuses of that. Bruce Molina describes it as a person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right or necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member. And so, uh, and for many of us that come from predominantly modern West European culture, we'd be like, that sounds awful. Uh, but, hear me, that's, that's the rest of the world. And there's plenty of things about it that really do work. And there's plenty of things about heavy individualism that don't. And so uh, this is the culture of Jesus's day, just so we know, the strong bond society. Now, did Jesus say family doesn't matter? Don't honor your father and mother. You are not your brother's keeper. He doesn't say anything along those lines. Um, he doesn't even say that strong bond society is necessarily a bad thing. But what Jesus will do, and, and what I think he's doing not necessarily deconstruct their understanding of the world, but instead recreate, to, to take what they know and actually apply it to something greater and bigger. So what did Jesus actually say? He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And this is a peculiar statement from Jesus and three of the four gospels recorded. So it's pretty important uh, in the storyline. But it's not the first time Jesus has said stuff about family. I mean, we've been covering the book of Matthew. He's already said things like this one guy who wants to follow Jesus but wants to bury his father. And he says, let, let the dead bury their own dead. Uh, he'll say things like um, in Matthew 10, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus has already made a statement and already taught about a prioritization of following Rabbi Jesus versus even family ties. He's already taught that lesson. So I think what he's doing here is this is probably deeper and more profound than, than simply that lesson. Uh, I think Jesus here uh, does something unique. And so for us to understand not just strong bonds, but we have to understand a little bit of Jewish culture practices uh, as well. And the first would be around the idea of redeem or redemption. It's just not a word we use. It's not a word we commonly use other than maybe with coupons or something like that. Um, it's just, uh, it's a foreign word for many of us, uh, other than church world. Let's remember, ancient cultures, highly patriarchal um, in, in what they were, and Israel was no different in their practices. And the idea of redeem, goel in Hebrew, was really tied into uh, a lot of the understanding of, of sort of patri patriarchal society. And, and God will use this around himself. He'll say in Exodus 6, I have redeemed you. Um, or Isaiah 43, the do not fear, I have redeemed you. Um, and, and for us to understand Goel, redemption, is to understand that the patriarch of the family, the, the, the figurehead of the family, was primarily responsible for the whole of the family. And so you'd have the patriarch and the various sons, the wives who've married in, their children, even the patriarch's younger brothers are part of the, the overall piece. And the responsibility of the patriarch was to take care of the needs of the family. They oversaw how the resources got distributed and made sure everybody was fed or clothed or housed, make sure all of that happens. But what happens is if someone gets captured by an enemy or is stuck out in the wilderness and lost, or um, even if they've lost a plot of the land that belonged under the umbrella of the patriarch, 
The job of the patriarch at that point is to bring back the lost family member, or to bring back the lost land, whatever it may be, to, to the bedah, to, to the father's house. And the co- at, at a cost of the, to the patriarch, like to buy back the land or whatever it is, it was a major cost for them to restore the household as it should be. Now, the restoring of the household, that is what redeem means. That it's its usage outside the Bible as much as it's its usage inside the Bible. To do what it takes to bring those outside the household of God back into the household. For God to, and God speaks to himself in the same way of a redeemer. And he looks at people and recognizes that there's something lost or something wayward or something captured, whatever it is, and wants to bring it back. And will do whatever it takes at great cost to himself to do so. And we see redemption stories in scripture. Like Abraham, he finds out his nephew gets captured, right? And what does he do as the patriarch of that group? As much as his nephew had kind of been a headache to the storyline, he goes and gets his nephew back. Like he's willing to go to war to get his nephew back. Or uh, Ruth and Naomi is a super famous version of this. You have Naomi, her, her family, they had lost all, basically all the men in the family and she had basically lost the land of the family. And there's sort of the question of what's going to happen. And then you find out Boaz is a redeemer, he's within the family line and actually buys back the land so that the family can have the land again. He's the redeemer in the story. And so we see that. So it's a big concept uh, that'll become a pact. And the other one is around the firstborn uh, son, particularly, the Behor. Firstborn sons in these patriarchal sort of societies carry the responsibility of the siblings. They would be given twice the amount of inheritance uh, which for most of us would be like, that sounds totally unfair. Uh, but uh, for them, it necessarily wasn't. And if you are a firstborn kid in this room, like now as an adult, you look back and you'd be like, yes, I had to carry a lot more responsibility than my siblings did. Um, I'm the youngest. I did not. I just got to do whatever I want. But the oldest in the rooms, you understand. And my oldest has to do responsibility and sometimes stands in for mom and dad, sometimes with her siblings and has to navigate that. And so there is this expectation, even in very non-traditional households, that that, that, that firstborn carries that weight. And in their culture, they would celebrate that. They would, when, when the, the, the mantle was passed on to the eldest son, they would have a celebration that, yes, we have this redeemer who will take care of us, who is over us, who will make sure we are fed and clothed and covered, and we would honor that son. Um, He would make sure if we get lost or stuck or whatever, captured, he will redeem us. He is responsible for that, and there'd be a celebration. Now, who is the firstborn of God in the Bible? Tricky question. Ooh, Adam, that's a good, that's a good piece too. Uh, I'm not going to go down the Adam route today, but that's a good one. Um, in the book of Genesis, or the book of Exodus, Israel themselves are called the firstborn son of God, uh, the firstborn of God. And, um, and so if Israel is the firstborn of God, the firstborn nation of God, what are the rest of the siblings? Yeah, the nations. Like that's, that's the picture we are meant to see of Israel be given the certain responsibility of being the firstborn nation that is of God. That they are given this designation of, look, I am going to bless you. I'm going to uniquely bless you. But your role is, is to do the work that I've set out by, with Abraham to go be a blessing to the rest of the nations. I need you to go to the ends of the earth and, and redeem it, to, to do this work with me. And to, and to bring the nations back to me. That's Israel's job. That's Israel's role in the storyline. 
That's the responsibility that they are given. And so let's return to Jesus and some of the stuff he says, because what does he say here? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So he expands the family analogy, right? Throw some sisters in there as well, right? He expands it from there, which isn't the first time Jesus is going to do this sort of expansion of, of adding sort of family members to the story. Let's take uh, Mark 10. Jesus will have a, almost a similar teaching. And uh, there's this back and forth uh, with this um, person who's asking, how do I be saved? And, and, and disciples hear it, and they're like, I don't, I don't know. Anybody could be saved. And Jesus is like, with God, anything's possible. And then Peter responds with this. He says to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive hundredfold now in this time, which is a really important piece of that, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. But what did he leave out? Father, right? Like, He repeated all of it. He repeated everything. Like, look at this chart. He repeated all the things. House, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, and lands. And he's like, you're going to receive a hundredfold these things back to you. But he doesn't list father in the storyline. And I think, once again, that would have been like, what do you mean, Jesus? Who's the father then? And what are you then, Jesus? Because remember what Jesus' role is in his own family, right? He's the eldest son. That is, that is his role in his, in his family with Mary and his brothers. And so in this moment where he does bear the responsibility, uh, at least culturally, to, to, to care for his mother and his brothers, he publicly defies it in a way in this moment. But I think it's pointing in how he responds and how he will respond like in Mark 10 to something so much bigger. That there's a work of redemption that Jesus has been set to do. And I think by taking the father out, he's pointing to a a greater father than whatever father he would have had, or even himself as the patriarch. He's the eldest son. He is the firstborn of God. That is his role. And there's a father that he is pointing to. It's as if he's connecting the story of Abraham, which is the blessing to all nations, the story of Israel, which is the firstborn of God, and now bringing it to himself, which Matthew has an interest in doing. Matthew certainly is interested in connecting Israel to Jesus himself, and Jesus is this firstborn. And he's creating this new family. It's not about blood ties. It's not about the nation of Israel and who your cousins are and everything like that. It is bigger. It's a bigger invitation that Jesus, I think, is getting after. In this work of redemption, That Jesus is endorsing a bit of a birth into a new family, and a new family line. In a world where language around family was the furthest thing from like an overused trope, this was like a revolution. Because we use the word much more flippantly, right? We say things like the Atlanta United family are going to support the team today, or something like that. Or the WeWork family, which we know how well that worked out. or the MailChimp family, or something like that. Like, that's the language that we use around, like, jobs or interchangeable relationships or preferences. Like, our roommates, we were like a family. It's like you lived together for two years. Like, that's not the same thing as family. Family, by its definition, is almost the exact opposite of that. Like, hear me, I can disown my father. 
but I will still have his nose and his eyes and his mannerisms. I can refuse to even talk to him, but that won't stop me from talking like him. And there are certain things about what family, a certain permanence that, that comes in with family. And what if Jesus is doing is taking what they know, which are these strong bonds, these relationships, and, and applying it to the very work he's come to do and the very people he's come to make, saying, I know you know about family. What I'm creating, those that follow the will of the Father, it's like that, but it's so much different as well. Like, what if we reset the quote that Bruce Molina said earlier about strong bonds, and we put the word church instead of group? The person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary, only if in accord with church norms and only if the action of the church is best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. And some of you are like, this is a cult. Um, Because you should hear that. I have visceral reactions to some of that. And, and partly because I've seen so much abuse of leadership and, and so much toxic culture, and I get it. I totally get it. But to be real, the invitation of what Jesus is inviting us into is this, though. That Jesus is planting a flag for a new family. And, and to make it very personal, like it is one that will redefine my identity at the deepest level. Like, it will permanently rewrite me into the unchangeable bloodline of the Redeemer himself, and one that will cause me to bear a resemblance to my Father on the deepest level that I can't walk away from. More than a trope or a cute metaphor, this is like a revelation from God of the kind of people he is making. Um, it, it redefines us at the deepest level, it reunites us at the deepest level, and it makes demands of us at the deepest level. Because remember, the initial creation of a people, uh, God does this um, unique thing. He starts with just two people. He doesn't start with a whole society of unrelated people. He starts with two. And he commands them to, to go be fruitful, multiply. Like, fill this earth with the family of Adam and Eve, right? Under the, the, the goals that God has to, to, to subdue it and to make it how God reigns. That's their goal. And so they're meant to do that across this whole earth as this unique family. But then sin enters in through the rebellion. Sin, sin enters in, and it causes not just a vertical breach. Sin certainly causes some a break in relationship between us and God, but it causes a break in relationship between Adam and Eve. They start hiding from each other, and then their kids come along and murder each other. Like, it causes relational strife right away in the process. It's God with us, God and us, but between each other. And sin, yes, sin makes like our creator, who is good and loving, seem distant or mysterious or difficult to love or difficult to trust, all the things I think sin does to our thoughts and faith. But sin also creates war. And sin builds racism in societies. And sin is food that spoils in the fridge of the wealthy while children go hungry. Or sin is falling out with a friend. Or sin is the distance that has grown in a marriage over time. Sin is treating my own need for acceptance by gossiping about somebody else. Or sin is the awkward dance we do when we avoid that one person at church that we had that one thing happen with a while ago. Right? 
All those things are what sin does. It's the breakdown of the image and the blessing of God that distinguished all of his people from the rest of creation in the first place. And it's vertical, but it's also horizontal in nature. And God is doing a work. He started in Abraham, but he's doing a work of bringing back his wayward creation, restoring the image of God and the vocation of Adam and Eve into his creation. And since sin is two-part, salvation is a two-part unification. Yes, a vertical and a horizontal unification, reunified, yes, with the Father, but God is also in the work of figuring out through his Holy Spirit and his power and through his people how this reunification of the Adam and Eve, the, the relationship of humans, will continue to work, and he uses the metaphor of family. Joseph Helderman says, American Evan, and he has a wonderful book on this whole subject, but he says, American evangelicalism is a community in crisis, and it will remain such as long as we fail to recapture the biblical understanding of salvation as a community-creating event. And I want to be very clear. The language of personal Savior or personal relationship with Jesus appears nowhere in Scripture. It's just not the language that Scripture uses. That being a disciple was understood as a birth into a new family of siblings in this tight-knit, unique community. North African um, church father, Cyprian of Carthage, he says this. This is mid-200s. This is really early in the life of the church. You cannot have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. And some of you would be like, yeah, but Jesus told the story where he, like, he left the 99, he went one and got the one. Yes, oh, cool. Jesus is concerned about individual salvation. Absolutely, I'm for that. But when the shepherd finds the sheep, does he then like, build a new pen? He's like, hey, I'm going to hang out with just you and me, and we're going to have our own personal relationship out here in the desert. No, he gets that one. He's like, i got to bring you back to the flock and restore you to, to the people that are mine. And he does that work. It's new life. It's salvation and conversion is a new birth into a new family. A family with one father, which is why Jesus uses some of the language he does, with one older brother who is responsible for the work of the father as well and takes care of his siblings. That's what we're bought into. And we gain both. Um, the metaphor that Paul will use a lot, he uses a lot of language but, uh, around family, but he talks about adoption. And here's the deal, when, you, when someone gets adopted, they're not just adopted to the parents, they're also adopted to a collection of siblings, usually. Whether, whether they get along with those siblings or not, like there's a new family that they're part of. And, and that becomes part of the, the identity. N.T. Wright says the only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisions loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. Uh, there's even some growing thought around the language of justification that we've been sometimes reading too much of a, a hyper-Western, individual, guilt-innocence culture into that word that first-century people may not have understood it the same way, that you are guilty and you're now innocent, like a judge courtroom. That much more of the language is probably um, about family identity, about being baptized from one family group to another, to justify. You are declared. You are justified. You are declared the family of God, almost the, the familification of God's people. And that's the metaphor that Paul runs with quite often. Uh, we even see, just in Paul's letters, just the amount of times he uses familial language uh, for his churches. I mean, this is, this, all these words are in relation to Paul speaking about 
church life um, and, and the family metaphor and how strong it was for his people. This is what Paul speaks to. Now, what does this actually look like in practice? Because guess what? I'm not, I haven't said anything that's revolutionarily new. Like, churches all over this country say things like, oh, church is a family and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it's because it's biblical. It's, it's an important idea. But it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to actually do these things. And so what does it look like? First one, you show up. Like, Thanksgiving, Christmas is showing up, coming up soon, right? And part of family life is that you show up. Unless, unless that home is incredibly toxic in, in terms of like the harm it does to the people that show up, you show up, right? And hear me, that gives you a wonderful out uh, should you be in a place that is incredibly toxic. And if we are that place, well, oh gosh, I hope we know it, um, but um, that, that is a reasonable reason to not participate in a family life both very practically with your biological families um, or, or adoptive families, but also church life. But, but it is important to show up consistently and unhurried. This isn't like, how do I efficiently do community? If that's your mindset with community, that's, that's kind of a dangerous starting point. Um, but we enter people's lives. We share experiences and burdens. We grow and understand each other. We develop empathy. We develop all these things. And hear me, that is primarily here. The, the way we structure things there's ways to do it outside of this, but the main way we structure that to happen is through our life groups. We, we built a scaffolding for community to happen in. And so every week, like a smaller group within this church, and there's a bunch of them, but I have one, right, that I participate in. And every Monday, we either meet at my house or the Kellogg's house, and Monday night, and we gather on hectic Mondays, on stressful Mondays, on fun Mondays, on boring Mondays, whatever the Monday is, we gather. And there we are, and we keep showing up. And some days that's harder than others. And we listen to one another, we pray with one another, we, we give our presence and our time as a gift to one another, and, and we're there. And like, hear me, this is the soil that God uses to make us one, just as the Father and Son are one, is, is time and presence and safety and all these things happening in particularly smaller communities. It's really hard to get to know each other very deeply in a setting like this. And so we, we purposely craft life groups for that purpose. But let's continue to talk about family and all the dynamics of that. Guess what families do together quite often? They eat together, right? And it's the breakdown, I think, in society when families don't do this, but they eat together. And so guess what we do? We, we eat, we literally today, we'll eat together. We, we share a table every time we gather, and I think Jesus gives us that gift. But even in our life group practices, we purposely like eat and do our discussions or eat and do our, our, our time together. And there's something so valuable about a meal. Um, I think one author, uh, I think Tim Chester said that uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, eating a meal, or leaving a meal uh, throughout the whole gospel. And so um, it's so essential, uh, and it means so much, particularly in certain cultures and societies. Uh, we share resources. We have benevolent policies here. We have ways that we take care of stuff within the life of the church, but even our life groups practice this quite a bit. Uh, so whenever there's a meal train, Somebody in the life group always like post it to the public group on our Slack. And if you're not on Slack, let us know. We want to incorporate you. But most of the time, those things are filled before I even get a chance to fill it out. Now, hear me. I'm also not always on top of communication and clicking on things, but um, they're always full. And, and our people, the, the taking care of each other is what families do. We share responsibilities um, and tasks. So um, in my own home, my kids participate in chores because 
They are a case. They are a part of the, the, the unit that makes up our household. And I think the household of God is the same way. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 12 that he's given everyone uh, a gift of the Spirit for the common good. And, and so we have a value as a church that everybody plays, that everyone participates in the life of the church. You, you have a gifting that is meant to be used here. And we are less of a church if somebody's here and not using their gifting. Um, I think family is still family when things are hard, uh, that we work through problems, um, that we fight unhealthy idealism too. Um, I think sometimes there, there could be an idealism around church life that, that everyone's going to be kind and awesome all the time. And that's not going to happen. You get a bunch of sinful people in a room together, in a life group or in this room together, bad things are going to happen. But here's the good news. You are the source of some of those things. Like, you are an imperfect person yourself. And someone's going to step on your toes, and you're probably going to step on someone else's toes or say something that could be misunderstood, or maybe you meant it to be mean. Who knows? That's part, of, that's part of communal life. And hear me, that's why long, intentional, showing up, working through these things matters so much, because it develops a tremendous amount of trust when you continue to do those sort of things. Like, friends can easily change, but family has some more permanence to it. We bear each other's burdens. Um, so when someone's suffering or when someone is in need, we, we really do share in those sort of things. When people are grieving, we share in their grief. Uh, we encourage and celebrate each other. I just came from, um, my wife's at, my wife works for a ministry that particularly works with people with disabilities. Um, and uh, they just had a camp. Uh, this, they have a retreat this past weekend. I was there Friday and Saturday. Um, and so much of the camp is like just about celebration. Um, it's so sweet to kind of watch. Um, but the, the sort of joy that gets drawn out and the way that it changes people's lives to have those sort of moments um, and, and to just be encouraged, to just be celebrated. Like that's where authors like Bob Goff and others are just tremendous gifts to the church to be like, look, it's a good thing to like laugh and to celebrate and to have fun and to find value in people and go, look, this is what I see in you. And hear me, and to do some of that without it being about accomplishment. Um, I'm fine with encouragement. Hey, you preached a really good sermon. You did a really good talk. Whatever. Uh, blessing others is so much deeper than that. It's one thing to say, hey, Sarah, you did a really good job teaching that class. It's another thing to say, Sarah, you are a really good friend. Those are different things. One's about accomplishments and what you did for him, and another is about being and, and calling out what you see God in that person. Um, and I think the family of God is meant to do that. <laughs> And lastly, um, and this is a really important one, because of deep relationships, to be real, the church will be sometimes the location of your deepest hurt, but it'll also be your source of your deepest healing. <clears throat> Just the nature. I mean, the same thing with biological or adoptive or family units. Some of your deepest cuts will come from that because there's deep levels of trust, there's deep levels of intimacy. <clears throat> but... Study after study after study after study after study will tell you that fleeing that or um, removing yourself from community is also tremendously harmful. Um, that there's a certain point where a community of trust, and hear me, it doesn't have to be the same community that you got hurt the hardest in, but a community of trust, a community where you are um, known, you are seen, you share, that no matter what sort of the trauma, the shame, the sin, the brokenness, whatever it may be, what are all the options, no matter the degree of intensity, almost every study would say they're hugely beneficial to find that sort of 
lives. Now hear me. You may have been deeply cut here. And it's not like returning to the community or staying in it means everybody suddenly has fixed themselves uh, and, and you're not going to have it happen again. I, I can't say it won't. But we are collectively a community where we are all saying we want to imitate the oldest son, and our father the best we can. And we are all working towards healing together. Um, We are broken, unhealthy, sinful people all trying to help other broken, unhealthy, sinful people. It's part of the life of the church. And and if you've been hurt, hear me, you have my my deepest sympathies. Um, But don't run. Don't run from, I think, what is the best medicine, and that is returning <laughs> to sometimes the healthy church and find the healthy church. And we hope you find it here. I want to go back uh, wrap up with this firstborn idea again, because let's remember, Jesus came, and he came from heaven. He came from all the resources of his father, and he's the very good firstborn son. He's come to bring back the lost children that have walked away from his father's house. He even went to the temple. And when he went to the temple, what did he say? He clears out the temple and he says, this is my father's house. And it will be a house of prayer for all nations. He points out the very mission that Israel was given. Saying, look, this, this temple, this whole thing that, we've, that God has set up with Israel, like our, the role of this was to, so that the nations would come and, and, and return to the father. And Jesus lives and he dies to pay off an enormous debt which is our sin, to redeem us. He says, I'm going to prepare a place in my father's house. And, and he gets about his father's work to redeem the lost. And Jesus even says in John 5, look, I only do what the father does. Like, I am in his business, which is to redeem. And now Jesus is continuing to go about that work as the firstborn son. And guess what? He invites us as his brothers and sisters into that process too. To go to the lost, let them know that there's a father who so deeply loves them that he was willing to send his son to this earth to redeem and to reconcile, to fix the brokenness of sin and how it's ruptured us and our father, but also to fix, by the power of his spirit, us and our brothers and sisters. To redeem is not about going to heaven, but to bring us back into the family of God. And that's the invitation.